America's webradio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Good evening. Welcome to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. This is your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist with all the latest mental health-related news, including everything about the mind, the brain, behavior, emotions, getting rid of bad habits, and feeling your best in terms of your mood, improving your relationships, and all of that without the hype and distortion of other media sources, with the benefit of more than 20 years in the practice of psychiatry, and with the goal of better informing the general public about mental health issues, as well as reducing the stigma associated with having a psychiatric diagnosis and needing treatment for it. And welcome to this edition of the Psychiatry Today podcast, pre-recorded for initial airing on Wednesday evening, October the 26th, 2016. And hope that you've been feeling well. Uh, there were several articles that will be of special interest to those of you who have ADHD or those of you who have family members or children with ADHD. Uh, so I thought I would start tonight's podcast with them and go through the few that I have. And then I'm sure there'll be time left over after that for other non-ADHD mental health issues. Uh, but before we start, just want to remind those of you who may not know, the term ADD is really outdated and is not considered official jargon or nomenclature, what have you. The diagnosis is Tension Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder. And then you have inattentive type, combined type with features of inattentiveness and hyperactivity. And then hyperactive impulsive type, without much trouble with attention. And that type, admittedly, is not found too terribly often. So with that background and just clarifying technical terms, let's dive into our first article. Uh, This one, I think, the most important, which is fact or fiction dispelling the myths and misconceptions of ADHD. Uh, This is very important, I think. You know, one of um, the main goals for this podcast is to sort of clear up and bust up the myths and misconceptions that people have about mental illness. And this is clearly one of the most misunderstood diagnoses. Uh, In fact, there are many people, and unfortunately including many doctors and child psychologists and parenting experts, who even deny or quote-unquote do not believe that there is any such thing as ADHD. There are conspiracy theorists who think that the diagnosis is something that organized psychiatry manufactured as a diagnosis simply to allow the pharmaceutical industry to sell and profit from medications to treat it. Um, This is just complete and utter nonsense. 
Uh, there are many, many, many decades of unbiased scientific research, meaning not sponsored by any pharmaceutical company. Uh, and it is well documented that ADHD is not only a valid diagnosis, but causes a great deal of disability, even to the point where we know that those who suffer from ADHD not only have trouble paying attention and may suffer as a result academically, but patients with this diagnosis have greater risks throughout life of substance abuse problems, uh, having a poor job history, that is to say going from job to job and not having stable employment, higher rates of traffic tickets and car accidents, higher rates of divorce. So anyone who denies that this is a true illness and well-characterized entity uh, simply is just ignorant. And, you know, I know that sounds very dismissive and... Uh, but really, there's nothing else you can say. Um, just that I think the attitude that um, you decide there is no such thing as a well-known illness is, in fact, itself quite, quite arrogant and even dangerous. <clears throat> All right, I'll stop editorializing and move on to the first article. ADHD is a very common condition. It is diagnosed mainly in children, but it also is diagnosed in adolescents and adults when it simply hasn't yet been diagnosed in childhood. According to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention here in Atlanta, 6.4 million children between the ages of 4 and 17 have been diagnosed with ADHD, and that's 2011 data. While many have heard of this condition, there are myths that surround the disorder and a certain stigma still exists. So let's break down what this condition is and also what it isn't. <clears throat> okay, so the first point the article makes is a common fiction of ADHD. The fiction being, well, my child is hyper, so they probably have ADHD. Children are inherently energetic, sometimes even rowdy. If unruly behavior is the only symptom, then it's difficult for a professional to say that their problem is truly a mental illness. And ADHD is a real mental disorder. But there are a myriad of reasons why children are inattentive, such as anxiety or inadequate sleep. But a child with ADHD does have a condition. Diagnosis will require observations of numerous symptoms in multiple settings and evidence of significant impairment. The main symptoms of ADHD are inattention, hyperactivity, and impulsivity. These can manifest in different ways, persistent fidgeting, being easily distracted or forgetful, and difficulty waiting for a turn or interrupting inappropriately. Fact, ADHD diagnosis is on the rise. 
ADHD is one of the most prevalent psychiatric illnesses of young people in America today. A recent study showed that ADHD diagnosis has gone up 43% between 2003 to 2011. The study was not designed to look at the underlying reasons for such changes in prevalence. However, it could be the result of a tendency to overdiagnose a situation. <clears throat> and while there has definitely been this easily observed upward trend in diagnosed ADHD cases, if the condition is overdiagnosed and the stimulants to correct the condition are taken casually, then treatment won't be durable and it could ignore other problems in their environment that are the actual stressors like internal worries, home conflicts, and learning disorders. And I'd like to add, although the article doesn't necessarily mention it, that while certainly uh, there are a lot of people who think ADHD is overdiagnosed, there is also ample evidence to document that the diagnosis is missed in a large number of cases. Uh, so no matter what your opinions on the issue, certainly more uniform and more reliable diagnosis would be uh, desired in order to make sure that kids who had the condition got the treatment they need and in order to avoid inappropriately diagnosing kids and giving them treatment when in fact there's some other entity going on for them besides ADHD that is causing their symptoms. Fiction. People with ADHD are only affected in the classroom. This point the article makes is very, very important. By definition, ADHD causes symptoms in multiple situations and domains, not simply in the classroom alone. Uh, it is quite often noted beginning in the classroom because uh, when children have to sit still and pay attention in school settings, that's often the first time they have to do that for any sustained period of time, and therefore it's very commonly that that's where the symptoms first become apparent. But ADHD and its symptoms clearly aren't limited to the classroom environment. Although children with these conditions are at higher risk for reduced school performance and academic attainment, there are other problems that they can encounter as a result. Children with ADHD are more likely to experience social rejection in childhood. Research suggests that they also have an increased chance of developing a conduct disorder and have increased chances of substance abuse and incarceration later on. Both children and adults with ADHD have elevated delay discounting. Okay, so let's explain that meaning. They overvalue immediate versus delayed rewards. Or to use more familiar terminology, they have trouble delaying gratification. All of us do this to a certain extent, but those with ADHD more steeply discount future rewards. For example, 
If presented with an option to receive $5 now or $10 in a week, someone with ADHD is more apt to select the lesser amount now. They have difficulty appropriately valuing long-term benefits and thus make decisions based on immediate rewards. This deficit seems to be connected to a broader problem with timing that extends to motor and perceptual timing. Fiction. ADHD is caused by bad parenting. This is one of the most common misconceptions, and this is a charge often leveled by those who uh, would deny the existence of ADHD as a legitimate illness that causes a great deal of suffering. But let's leave that for after our first commercial break, which we'll take now. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. Obamacare is failing. We all know that, but you need to know why and what you can do to get us back on the right track. Visit us at ObamacareWatch.org. This is Grace Marie Turner of the Galen Institute. Join us at ObamacareWatch.org. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare. But for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call. And I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose. And with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott giving you all the latest mental health-related news. Right now, we're talking about fact and fiction about ADHD, Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder. All right, fiction. ADHD is caused by bad parenting. Yes, that is a fiction. Causes for mental illness are very difficult to pinpoint, but... The general consensus is that they are products of the interaction of genetics with the environment. 
certain people who have genes that influence how the brain processes dopamine, which is your pleasure-reward chemical, but also very much involved in attention and motivation, uh, that these folks may have increased risk for ADHD. But having the genes doesn't necessarily mean a person will show signs of the condition. There are a number of things that parents can do or not do that alter a child's development and their chances of having ADHD. It's clear that early emotional neglect has profound consequences for brain development that can affect the brain structure, connectivity, and capacity, including impairments in focus and attention. Exposure to toxins such as alcohol or nicotine while uh, developing in the uterus increases the risk for ADHD in a dose-dependent fashion, meaning the greater the exposure, the greater the chances of that uh, child being born into the world with ADHD. Although these risk factors can increase the chances of developing ADHD, for many kids, none of these risk factors are present. These are public health concerns, to be sure, and also reasons supporting early intervention efforts. In an individual family, it's less helpful to look back than it is to work with the present. The article didn't mention one other potential factor in the increase in the diagnosis of ADHD and how this might relate to genetics, but there was at least one study I can recall reading that found that it may have to do with women having children at a later age and even fathers fathering children at a later age, increasing the risk. Uh, there's really a lot that we have yet to learn about it. Fiction. Children on ADHD medication can seem drugged. Many parents shudder at the thought that their child has a mental disorder and can be skeptical about medications that are prescribed, not wanting their child to spend years on powerful drugs. Although therapy and counseling may be enough to mitigate the symptoms of ADHD, medication may be required to fully manage the condition. According to the CDC, between 70 to 80% of children with ADHD have fewer symptoms when they take prescribed stimulants. The common way that the term drugged is used suggests lethargy and loss of capacity. Stimulants, the most commonly prescribed medication, typically do not have this effect. Now, I'd like to add my own input uh, apart from what the article just mentioned. There are times when children on ADHD medications will complain of feeling quote-unquote like a zombie or acting like one, or their parents will. Um, there are times when the medication will make a kid so focused on what they're doing that they will just do the task set in front of them uh, like a robot, and it will take away any sort of spontaneity, much less 
being distracted or impulsive. Uh, really, this is just an indication that either the dose of the medication is too strong or it simply isn't the right medication for them. Uh, but this is not what is supposed to be able to happen. Uh, the medication is supposed to help the child focus, stay on task, in order to pay attention in school, in order to do their homework efficiently, but not to change who they are and how they feel and act and behave. Uh, so if there is a complaint like that, it's very clear that that should not be considered an inevitability, uh, that all kids uh, will wind up acting and feeling like that on medicines. Uh, that's a sign that something in the treatment is wrong and it needs to be somehow changed or adjusted. Fact, ADHD can be treated. Treatment of ADHD has been proven beneficial for some. Uh, like any other mental health treatment, no medication works for everyone who tries it. Results from one of the largest, most comprehensive studies of ADHD found that some of those who were initially diagnosed with mild ADHD were no longer diagnosed when surveyed eight years later. The study showed no correlation between treatment and the change in diagnosis, and some people with ADHD will continue to have lifelong impairment. We're going to explore that issue further in the next article that we discuss. Many people with easier-to-treat ADHD can successfully manage their symptoms. Unfortunately, many others will struggle with ADHD in all aspects of their life, despite the best possible treatment. If you are unsure about whether your child has ADHD, it's best to consult with a child psychologist. Uh, some primary care physicians, specifically pediatricians, are more expert than others in terms of diagnosing ADHD. I think the best way to go is with a child and adolescent psychologist who specializes in performing these types of evaluations. Now, I would like to get back to one of the points this article made about the medications um, that uh, children on ADHD can seem drugged is uh, definitely a fiction surrounding ADHD and its treatment. But another fiction that the article didn't mention but I'll bring up and address is that ADHD stimulant medications turn children into drug addicts. Um, it is true that the stimulant ADHD medications are basically pharmaceutical quality speed and uh, Adderall and all of its chemical cousins are literally amphetamine der derivatives. However, <clears throat> it is not to say that people with ADHD would abuse or misuse these drugs in the same way that someone who does not have ADHD would get some sort of euphoriant effect from them. Uh, <clears throat> there is widespread abuse and misuse of stimulant medications, uh, but this is uh, almost 
all due to people who do not have ADHD wanting the uh, energy and uh, mental edge uh, that the stimulant will give them. Whereas if one's brain is wired such that they have ADHD, then when they take these medications, they don't get that euphoriant uh, energy-giving effect. Instead, it helps the person actually get calmer and better able to focus and slow down your brain instead of speeding things up. Uh, so this, again, doesn't... 100% exclude the possibility that someone with ADHD would abuse their medication, but significantly and uh, greatly reduces it. Now, also, it should be noted that lots of research has shown that when you look at a population of children and adolescents with ADHD and you compare the rates of substance abuse in adulthood, with those kids who were treated with stimulant medications versus those who were not. Instead of what the naysayers would predict that, hey, if you give these kids these powerful stimulant drugs, they're going to go on to become drug addicts. Exactly the opposite happens. The kids who were given the stimulant medications in childhood or adolescence go on to have far fewer problems with alcohol and drugs compared to the kids who were not given the stimulants. So uh, I think this is a very important myth out there that needs to be addressed. All right, now let's go into our second in this series of ADHD articles on tonight's podcast, which is that ADHD symptoms persist into adulthood. ADHD used to be considered just a child diagnosis, but we now know this not to be the case. 60% of children with ADHD in a recent study demonstrated persistence of symptoms into their mid-20s, and 41% had both symptoms and impairment as young adults. Investigators noted that rates of ADHD persistence into adulthood have varied greatly in earlier studies, depending on how information was collected and analyzed. In a 16-year follow-up of the multimodal treatment study of children with ADHD, it was found that a combination of parent and self-reports plus a symptom threshold that is adjusted for adulthood rather than based on traditional childhood definitions of ADHD may be optimal. For example, the child who is impulsive and fidgety in the classroom and interrupts the teacher grows up to be someone who can't sit still at meetings and often will uh, interrupt their colleagues in conversation. There's been a lot of recent controversy over whether children with ADHD continue to experience symptoms into adulthood. Uh, and <clears throat> the whole concept of adult ADHD uh, and what that means and where that term comes from definitely needs to be explained. 
But I think because that is another one of these myths uh, that needs to be busted, let me go to our second commercial break at this point, and we'll start fresh in the news segment to explain that fully. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back. Your auto love and investment demands the best, and for 45 years, Passport Transport has been meeting those demands. From manufacturers to the one-car collectors and all other facets of the auto industry and antique auto hobby. The first and the finest with unequaled service and peace of mind. Passport Transport, your auto transportation company. Contact PassportTransport.com with your need today. Passport Transport. Obamacare is failing. We all know that, but you need to know why and what you can do to get us back on the right track. Visit us at ObamacareWatch.org. This is Grace Marie Turner of the Galen Institute. Join us at ObamacareWatch.org. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare, but for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose. And with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay with all the latest mental health related news talking about ADHD and how the symptoms often persist from childhood and adolescence into adulthood. Um, And we're looking at a study that was published recently in the Journal of Child Psychology and Psychiatry. It found that the way you diagnose ADHD can lead to different conclusions about whether or not an adult still has the disorder that started in childhood. First, if you ask the adult about their continued symptoms, they will often be unaware of them. However, family members or others who know them well often confirm that they still observe significant symptoms in the adult. If the classic childhood definition of ADHD is used when diagnosing adults, many cases will be missed because symptom presentation changes in adulthood. By asking a family member about the adult's symptoms and using adult-based definitions of the disorder, you typically find that around half of children with moderate to severe ADHD still show significant signs of the disorder in adulthood. Now, I would like to, again, go further than what the article says to bust another myth, as it were, about ADHD. And this is the whole notion of adult ADHD. Quite strictly speaking, 
There is literally no such thing. If you're saying adult onset ADHD, um, the adult ADHD symptom presentation that doesn't uh, occur in childhood is another story, and that requires collateral information. Um, <clears throat> if the parents are still around and able to report, well, when this person was a child in school, did they have trouble with distractedness and or impulsivity? Um, if they did, then it's much more likely than the symptoms of ADHD that they're showing up with in adulthood are due to ADHD and not to, due to some other cause. If, however, in childhood and adolescence, there was no problems with attention or problems with hyperactivity or impulsivity, it's far less likely that whatever symptoms the person is having in adulthood are in fact due to ADHD. Uh, there is no such thing as ADHD that starts as an adult. By definition, ADHD is an illness that starts in childhood. Uh, now, the whole reason it may not be diagnosed into uh, until adulthood rather is complex. One common reason is if the child only had inattentiveness and did not have hyperactivity or impulsivity, then they did not present the teachers in elementary school with any behavior management problems. Therefore, they were not singled out for testing or evaluation for ADHD. And if the child was exceptionally bright, as is often the case with ADHD kids, then they quickly learn how to overcome and adapt for their inattentiveness and have little to no trouble achieving according to academic norms compared to their non-ADHD peers. So again, there's nothing to make them stand out that's different from their peers. They did not get assessed or diagnosed. And it's only until adulthood when those same coping mechanisms that got the child through elementary school, middle school, perhaps also high school, perhaps also college, and perhaps even graduate school, if it's a subject that person is extremely interested in, it's easier to focus on. But sooner or later, in adulthood, life gets too complicated and too demanding of their attention to too many different issues, home, mortgage, marriage, children, career, etc. And those coping mechanisms, coping mechanisms that help them in school are overwhelmed and again, um, they become symptomatic of the ADHD, easily distracted, unable to focus, unable to finish things. And this is the common scenario for not getting diagnosed until adulthood. So there you have it. ADHD is always childhood onset Diagnosis may not happen until adulthood for various reasons, um, but <clears throat> while the illness is the same, the symptom manifestation is somewhat different, 
so the diagnosis does have to be approached in a different way than you would for children and adolescents. Remarkably, the treatments are the same. Uh, the same stimulant medications that we give to children also help adults with ADHD symptoms. Now, the next and last in our series of articles that address various aspects of ADHD on this week's podcast says that fewer indications of ADHD are found in children whose mothers took vitamin D during pregnancy. Now, information like this is very important because we really don't know enough about what environmental factors may influence the development of ADHD. We know that genetic factors are very strong. This tends to run in families, especially in uh, the males of the families. Um, and in that part of the family tree, you can reliably track it. Uh, but as far as, you know, what environmental things, uh, other article we talked about before mentioned things like smoking and other environmental toxins. Uh, but let's see what this latest article has to say about vitamin D levels. Well, to start, children of mothers who took vitamin D during their pregnancy with resultant high levels of the vitamin in the umbilical cord blood at birth have fewer symptoms of ADHD when the children are two and a half. These were findings in a new study uh, that were just published in the Australia and New Zealand Journal of Psychiatry. And <clears throat> they found for uh, a certain amount of increase in vitamin D concentration in umbilical cord blood, the risk of being among 10% highest score on ADHD symptom scale fell by a corresponding amount. They evaluated over 1,200 children. Vitamin D was measured in umbilical cord blood, and mothers completed the child behavior checklist when their child was two and a half years old. This questionnaire can be used to identify early symptoms of ADHD even though an ADHD diagnosis cannot be made at that extremely young age. And the trend was clear. Those mothers who had taken vitamin D and had a vitamin D level in their umbilical cord blood uh, over 25 had children with lower ADHD scores. This was after researchers had corrected for other factors that could explain the link such as the mother's age, whether she smoked or not, drank alcohol or not, or was obese or not, her level of education, the number of children, and psychiatric disease in both parents, as well as the child's gender and seasonal variations. This link between vitamin D levels and early ADHD symptoms has not been described before, and therefore has attracted attention. The authors of the study were very surprised that the link was so clear as there was no previous awareness that this link could be identified at such an early age. It's impossible to say with which children will develop ADHD later on, but it will be interesting to further follow up these children who were at the highest end 
versus the normal range of the ADHD scale. <clears throat> the study offers no explanation as to how having higher levels of vitamin D can protect against ADHD, but other studies have shown that vitamin D plays an important role in the early development of the brain. And with that being quite well known, I don't think it's such a surprise that uh, higher levels of vitamin D would seemingly protect against ADHD. But they can't say with any certainty that it does so. It's just that the study finds a link that they so far could not explain in any other way. Um, the 2,500 or so mothers and their children in this study are being monitored from early pregnancy to the child's 18th birthday. Uh, the children are now three to five years old and a number of follow-up studies are planned. Uh, so I think this is very interesting and very provocative indeed, uh, the notion that vitamin D levels could be an important issue. So of course it'll be interesting for the researchers to provide us with information on these kids once they reach at least the minimum age at which ADHD can be diagnosed around seven years old and then to track how they do later on in the elementary school years and into middle school and even uh, adolescence uh, again they plan to follow the kids up to age 18 what would also be very interesting is um, to try uh, intervening in cases with uh, adding uh, extra vitamin D and seeing if you can reduce the background incidence of ADHD in a population um, <clears throat> you really couldn't ethically do a placebo controlled study of this um, I just don't think that would be ethically uh, appropriate to say well your kid may get extra vitamin D in utero and your kid may not and we're going to see what happens to them something like that doesn't sit well but there are still ways that uh, this issue can be studied further in uh, looking ahead and seeing what happens to kids as they develop more on that to be brought to you if I see any further follow-up studies. All right, we're going to take another commercial break, and we'll come back with other mental health-related news. Uh, and this is Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. 
More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. Obamacare is failing. We all know that, but you need to know why and what you can do to get us back on the right track. Visit us at ObamacareWatch.org. This is Grace Marie Turner of the Galen Institute. Join us at ObamacareWatch.org. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare, but for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose. And with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today, once again with your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist with all the latest mental health-related news. This next item admittedly is not necessarily restricted to mental health issues. Um, It is broadly applicable to any medical problem whatsoever, but that certainly includes mental health issues. And it does have to do with patient behavior and... uh, Anxiety, well, it's about how doctors are much better than Internet or app-based symptom checkers at figuring out the proper diagnosis. And that doesn't matter whether you're talking about psychiatric illness or any other medical problem. And what drives people to use these things is anxiety. You have a symptom, you're wondering what may be wrong, and there's all this information that's available to you, so no need to meet with, wait until you can meet with your doctor, which if you're lucky, maybe days or weeks. If you're not so lucky, maybe months. Um, well, it turns out that there is now documentation to back up what many doctors have long been recommending to you, that if you go to those websites or use those apps, more than likely, instead of getting an accurate diagnosis, you're just going to needlessly increase your anxiety with an inaccurate, scary diagnosis. So let's see what this study did. Um, of course, you know, it starts with the idea that increasingly powerful computers using ever more sophisticated programs are challenging human supremacy in areas as diverse as playing chess and making emotionally compelling music. But what about the idea that digital diagnosticians match or even outperform human physicians? Well, the answer, according to a new study that comes to us from researchers at Harvard Medical School, is not quite. The findings were published on October the 10th in 
the Journal of the American Medical Association Internal Medicine, and they show that physicians' performance is vastly superior and that doctors make a correct diagnosis more than twice as often as 23 different commonly used symptom checker apps. The analysis is believed to provide the first direct comparison between human-made and computer-based diagnoses. Diagnostic errors stem from failure to recognize a disease or to do so in a timely manner. Physicians make such errors roughly 10 to 15 percent of the time. Over the last two decades, computer-based checklists and other fail-safe digital apps have been increasingly used to reduce medication errors or streamline infection prevention protocols. Lately, experts have wondered whether computers might also help improve clinical diagnoses and reduce diagnostic errors. Each year, hundreds of millions of people use Internet programs or apps to check their symptoms or to self-diagnose. Yet how these computerized symptom checkers fare against physicians has not been well studied. In this Harvard study, 234 internal medicine physicians were asked to evaluate 45 clinical cases involving both common and uncommon conditions with varying degrees of severity. For each scenario, physicians had to identify the most likely diagnosis, along with two additional possible diagnoses. Each clinical vignette was solved by at least 20 physicians. The physicians outperformed the symptom checker apps, listing the correct diagnosis first 72% of the time, compared with only 34% of the time for the digital platforms. 84% of clinicians listed the correct diagnosis in the top three possibilities, compared with 51% for the digital symptom checkers. The difference between physician and computer performance was most dramatic in more severe and less common conditions. The difference was smaller for less acute and more common illnesses. Despite outperforming the machines, physicians did still make errors in about 15% of cases. Researchers say developing computer-based algorithms to be used in conjunction with human decision-making may help further reduce diagnostic errors. Clinical diagnosis is currently as much art as it is science, but there is great promise for technology to help augment clinical diagnoses. That is the true value proposition of these tools. What this means is you can stop using these websites and these symptom checking apps, okay? Um, I think what you're better off doing is waiting to talk to your doctor, or if you must, there are now apps that will uh, get you in touch with a consulting doctor very quickly who of course cannot examine you 
um, and is not going to uh, replace your own doctor who will you know talk to you and examine you, but at least you're interacting directly with a qualified physician who can evaluate your symptoms and give you the most likely diagnoses. Now, I don't have the names of any of these apps, uh, but I know they're out there. Uh, for some, you might have to pay to join a service, uh, but for people who are on the go a lot and uh, don't have a regular physician, uh, it might well be worth it. Uh, certainly a personal decision. Um, I also want to remind you of previous research, which I talked about at the time it came out. It shows that the more uh, anxiety people have about their symptoms or especially things like side effects of medicines, uh, the worse they're actually going to feel. And if you go to one of these symptom checkers and put in your symptoms, and what's the first thing that comes back? Cancer or something very, very serious? Um, in, instead of accomplishing uh, something positive about your health care uh, that will inform you in a useful way about what may be going on, uh, you've quite probably needlessly uh, uh, aggravated your anxiety in a potentially a very severe way. So <clears throat> um, what about Watson, you might ask? Um, Watson, if you aren't aware or don't recall, is IBM's extremely powerful supercomputer um, who uh, easily uh, beat uh, the top uh, Jeopardy champion. And it has been used uh, and continues to be used in medical applications. Now, um, you might say, well, you know, can, can Watson accomplish uh, this task and would Watson then be able to replace uh, physicians? Well, the answer is no. Even the head of IBM, who was interviewed recently for a television news show, uh, said, no, Watson is never intended to ever replace physicians' judgment, but instead uh, Watson is intended to be a tool to aid physicians in terms of giving them an evaluation of the patient's symptoms, complete medical history, laboratory data, imaging data, and give the doctor information about what are the most likely diagnoses, uh, provide information on relevant research studies, and so on. So uh, as the article about this research states, uh, the best way that computer-based algorithms can help would be in conjunction with human decision-making to augment it <clears throat> to help reduce diagnostic errors, but not to replace uh, human medical judgment. A machine uh, cannot assess a living, breathing patient in the same way that a properly trained physician can, and uh you know, there's simply no way to replace that. All right, next up on psychiatry today, um, few people would knowingly take a placebo to treat their pain, right? Well, maybe not. Conventional wisdom is long held that placebos uh, depend on patients' belief they're getting active medicine. Well, a, a, an article published in the journal called Pain shows that patients who knowingly took a placebo in conjunction with treatment for lower back pain felt better than those who had the traditional treatment alone. The new research shows the placebo effect isn't necessarily 
elicited by a patient's expectation that getting active medicine is long thought to be the case. It's just taking a pill in the context of the patient-clinician relationship, even if you know it's a placebo. It's a ritual that changes symptoms and probably activates regions of the brain that modulate symptoms. Research studied 97 patients with chronic lower back pain, and this is a condition that causes more disability worldwide than any other medical condition. And they gave all the patients a 15-minute explanation of the placebo effect. And then some got treatment as usual, others got the placebo with full knowledge. Now, most of them were already on some kind of medication or uh, active treatment. There was also um, no requirement to do exercise or make other changes. And, you know, the uh, placebo group had a bottle that said placebo pills on it. So there was no hiding no deception. Um, now, after the three-week course, there were 30% reductions in pain in the placebo group compared to treatment as usual group, only uh, 16% reduction. And um, also, the placebo group had 29% drop in pain-related disability. Uh, so you can elicit the placebo effect without the deception. This is uh, documented, really, I think, for the first time in treating pain. Um, so there's lots of other symptoms that may be modulated by this effect. In a way, it somewhat validates the fact that in certain countries, for example, especially Germany, uh, the German Medical Association openly advocates the prescribing of placebos, and the German general public are well aware of this and willingly take them. Uh, so now we may have a reason why. All right, well, that's going to wrap it up for tonight's show. Hope you have been feeling well and you enjoyed the information that I enjoyed bringing to you and found it interesting and informative. And I hope that you have a wonderful, stress-free week until we get together next time. But if not, then you need to call Dr. Scott. Good night and thanks for listening. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.